Hello everyone, and welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast, with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Okay, so welcome back. Once again, I have my visitor, Mike. Hi. From Switzerland. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about expat life and why we became expats and... Don't call me an expat. And how not to call Mike an expat, because he's a, what are you, an immigrant? I'm an immigrant, yeah. A refugee. Um, Yeah, that's actually something that came up yesterday when we were just uh, having a drink, was that there's a difference in expat and and an immigrant. And uh, yeah, well, I'll let you explain that, Mike. Well, I mean, I left the UK as soon as I could after graduation um, for various reasons that may or may not be connected to uh, the way the UK was going at, at the time, and this was 2003, um, got the first job I possibly could in foreign and moved there. It was, it was uh, the Netherlands, but I always got my back up whenever I said, oh, so you're an expat, are you? Like, no, I live in Holland. I wanted to move out of the UK uh, kind of permanently, and there's a whole set of sort of assumptions about expats and expat life and where I was working there was a mixture of people who were just there sort of semi-temporarily, we were on permanent contracts so we were rather more immigrants than, than the traditional expat like uh, uh, Tim came across in the oil industry but occasionally we would mingle with the other type of Brits in foreign who would ask questions like, are you going home for Christmas? I am home, yeah, I'm staying home for Christmas. No, no, I mean, are you going back to the UK? No. Well, maybe, don't know, haven't decided yet. But uh, it's, it's a sort of a whole set of assumptions based around sort of temporariness or, or otherwise. Um, and people who sort of consider themselves expats and sort of get mocked for sitting around propping up a British bar in Tobago or somewhere uh, looking for news from I mean, pre-internet era, reading The Week or these other weekly periodicals that were marketed to these kinds of, uh, these kinds of, of people. Um, and I was never like that. I, I, I always wanted to integrate. Well, I think the difference is, the big difference is, your first overseas, you, when you w- moved overseas, you went where? To The Hague? Yeah. Right, well, The Hague is a place which is, in many ways, very similar to the UK. It's similar social level. Mm-hmm. You can integrate with the locals. You can send your kids to school with the locals. You can, you can socialise with them. They play similar sports. They have similar interests. They have similar values. You can't do that in somewhere like Kuwait mm. or Dubai. Mm. So if you go to a place like that to work... Say, my first assignment was, well, not counting a few weeks in Oman and a short period in Dubai. I was sent to Kuwait. Yeah. Now, I would always be an expat there. But they don't want you as an immigrant there. Exactly. They? they don't want you as an immigrant. And it's, and it's that the cultures are so different and the countries are so different. You can't actually integrate there. Um, Nigeria, you could to some degree, but that would have taken a massive effort. There were people there who had married locals and were living there permanently. Um, there was a Welsh guy actually from Milford Haven, not far from where I'm from. He was uh, living there with his Nigerian family and he was a member of the local church. He was very active in that. And yeah, he was much more of an immigrant than an expat. He mm. rarely went back to the UK. But again, for most people to take that step would have been an enormous... You'd have to marry into it effectively. I can't see how an English family could move to Nigeria and become integrated with everybody else without a Nigerian being part of that family. So I think that's probably the difference. And unfortunately, the oil business sends you more to... Well, it doesn't. It sends you everywhere. But there's a lot of places like that. Whereas in your line of work perhaps there's less scope to be sent to a place where you really are in hostile territory and mm. the culture gap's huge. But the, the funny thing was, though, there were plenty of people I worked with and also people, because we were just, just around the corner from Shell, um, ended up mingling with, with Shell types as well. And there were some, particularly Shell types, who had been posted to the, to the Hague and had stayed there. They'd had their kids there. They put their kids through the British school. Yep. They... 
um, discouraged at best or sometimes even prohibited their kids from mingling with the Dutch. So the kids were growing up British in this, in this expat bubble and they would get through the whole of the British school, would graduate, then would go to university in the UK and a lot of them couldn't understand a word or couldn't speak a word of Dutch, they could probably under, understand it. Um, I had a boss who had lived for over 20 years uh, in The Hague, could not, would not, did not want to, he looked down on the Dutch. Yeah, that's strange behaviour. Um, but it might be because they're, I suspect with the case of Shell, they're there for their careers and they're not in the slight, it just happens to be in The Hague. They're, they're, mm. If their career path would have taken them to the moon, they'd have gone there. Um, because you, you do see that a lot with the, the expat crowd. The reason they send them to the British school, this is what they say. I don't necessarily agree with this, but this is what they say, is that they want to keep the curriculum the same. So that in three years when they do their assignment in Nigeria, mm. and then they go to Singapore, and then they go to Canada, they go through the British school system. So they go for the... The international schools usually offer uh, some consistency, whereas if they put them in the Dutch school and their next assignment is in Gabon... Yeah, they're stuffed. You know, they're stuffed. I mean, so, I, I appreciate that with, the, with the, the, the people who are posted temporarily. It makes no sense if you're only going to be there for two, three, five, seven years or whatever not to put your kid into a foreign uh, system. But some of, these, some of these people, their kids live their entire lives in this sort of temporary bubble and, and very few of these kids as far as I'm aware because I was there for a while so we'd see them uh, sort of uh, acquaintances kids grow up go to university and then they get a job in the UK yeah that's a strange one I suspect again that derives from the fact that they were working for a major oil company which it is in itself a bubble mm. if you work for a major oil company you're pretty isolated from the real world and it's quite funny that I see a lot of my colleagues now, they don't realise how insulated they are from the real world working in these companies because most of them I know now have been there probably 10, 15, 18 years. Yeah. And it's quite funny, even though they're still very down to earth, the fact that they've, not, that they've forgotten what life is like when you're not working for an international oil company, it is very much you're in a bubble. And I expect it's something to do with that. They, they, they consider themselves more part of the company than they do the country that they're located okay. in. Interesting. <clears throat> um, my, my job in the Netherlands, it was a permanent contract. It wasn't a time-limited posting or anything. We got a Kushti expat package, which was nice. I mean, not like a package going to Sakhalin or whatever and getting danger money in. Package in Sakhalin? Oh, yeah. yeah. Do, do tell. I don't, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> At least I don't remember one of them. <laughs> I mean... Um, Sort of the, the, the sort of inflated salaries, the discomfort and boredom money. Oh, we had that later on, yeah, the discomfort, yeah. Um, we... um, and part of this package was schooling for the kids, and you yes. had a choice between, I mean, there, there were a large number of different international schools in the Hague area. In fact, the British school is basically subsidised by Shell. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's, it's Shell, uh, Shell money that keeps that afloat and there's an American school there's a there'll be a few of the diplomats will send their kids there as well it'll be between yeah. oil companies and diplomats yeah yeah and uh, I got funny looks initially when I said no I'm gonna put my kids in the uh, in in the Dutch system why well because we live here the kids are going to grow up here um, in fact my my oldest kids first language when we decided that no we weren't going to stay in the Netherlands permanently um, was was uh, Dutch Right. rather than English, because we spoke a mixture at home, and um, I thought the transition to Swiss German was going to be easier for her than it was. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Right, okay. Um, I thought, similar language, she'll take it in her stride, and actually it was a bit more of a struggle than that. Um, but yeah, the, I got really funny looks, less from the people I was working with, because some of them would put their kids in the, in, in the Dutch system. To be honest, I reckon... If that compatibility and consistency with the syllabus issue didn't exist, they would still put their kids in the expensive private schools. Then mm. I think it, it is a valid thing when they say you want the syllabus to be consistent, but I think even if there was some way of avoiding that, they would still want to be paying 30000 a year per child in, in a... In a private school the, the the ones in all my colleagues in Paris sent their children to the international schools and all the British school or the American school 
there's a few exceptions. There's a German guy who I know who now lives in Canada. And being German, he's quite, you know, down to earth. And he was, he used to say quite often, why, why, are, you send, why are people sending their kids to these expensive schools? There's, no, you know, nothing wrong with the schools in Canada or Switzerland or Holland or Germany or France. Mm. I mean, the UK, you might end up in the wrong one and stabbed. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so he, he had that point. It was quite interesting because in, in, I have this group of colleagues in Paris and they'd all get together and talk about the schools and the expense and this kind of thing. And I used to joke with them and I'd say, you know, I'd pick out the Venezuelan or the Jamaican or the Russian or the Kazakh or the Malaysian and say, of course, yeah, you have to spend 30,000 a year on your children because obviously your parents spent this on your education, didn't they? And they all start looking and go, no, 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 we went to the local school where our parents had no money. Oh, right, okay, so it worked out okay for you. So, and I said, the only one in this group here who had an expensive education is me. And look how I turned out. So throwing <laughs> money at schools in order to bring kids up, that might not be the best return. And the thing with the British school, when, when, when we sort of looked at it in passing and my wife had done some volunteering there, was because it had a captive audience. Yes. It wasn't actually academically that good. Yeah, no, I can believe that. Um, I've got a friend who's in the kids go to the, I think the British school in Saudi Arabia. Well, the teachers aren't British. Ah. No, they're from east of Saudi Arabia and she's not particularly impressed but it's a captive audience Um, when they were in Moscow they were charging an extortionate amount of money for the children to go to the British school there and it's this emotional blackmail when they start talking about the rate increases the headmaster says oh well clearly you don't want the best for your children so it's, it's this kind of implication that unless you're shelling out everything for your kid this is uh you know you're you're some kind of bad parent. And this is how they guilt trip them into it. It's quite a clever model. And it, mm. it works, clearly, because they can charge what they like. I think it was something like thirty, forty thousand 40,000 a year. In, and this is for a day school in, yeah. in Moscow. And it's full of all these millionaires' kids. And, and it's interesting, because they start talking about how, oh, the expensive education gives you confidence and this kind of thing. And, and it, um, it, it gives you the contacts you need, which is absolute bollocks. Because I don't know what it was like where you were in school, but... Where I went to school, the boarding school, it gave you all the confidence and things if you were good at sport. Oh, yeah. If you weren't good at sport, well, you were a nobody, you know, because academia doesn't, unfortunately, in these schools, doesn't counteract uh, lack of sporting ability. Well, also, in the, in, in the British uh, psyche, you're not supposed to try hard. You're a spod or whatever. Exactly. It was at the area if, if you're good at academics. And, uh, and sport, it had to be a major sport. If you were good at a minor sport... Oh, that was no good. No, that was no good. No, No. it was rugby, cricket, hockey, something like that. Yeah. And and that's the problem. So, okay, there were some very good opportunities. I'll grant that. I mean, so, for example, one of my friends put it. He said what he wants is for his... Because I went to school with him and we talked probably about a year ago and we said that at least they did get the opportunities. We were doing canoeing, we were doing rock climbing, we were doing everything. So every single thing there was to do, we did. So it does give you opportunities. Um, But... When I look back at who I've stayed in touch with and who have been the big influences on my life, there's one guy from, uni- from school who I'm in touch with. He's the guy I just had that conversation with. He left school at 18, immediately joined the Paras, did a couple of tours of Kosovo, stayed in the Paras, was doing some dodgy activity in London, then went to Iraq, left the Paras, became a mercenary, was basically doing mercen- proper all-out mercenary work in Iraq for three, four, five years, made a ton of money, went back to London, where he's now kind of engaged in very grey area stuff. So, so this is the guy I know from boarding school. Mm. Now, is this what parents... I mean, he's a great guy. I'm really glad that I know him. But is this really what parents envisage their, you know, little Tamsin's going to be hanging out with? Yeah. Whereas university, now to be fair, you do need a good school to get to a good university, but my university friends are the ones who, who I did stay in touch with. They're the ones who really shape you and influence you and you stay friends with them for life, or at least that was the case, that was the case for me. So I think sending a kid to school, all you need to do is get them into a good university. Yeah. Nothing else really matters. And one of the advantages of, of living in Switzerland now is that if your kid's not academically inclined, they're not put on the dung heap of, uh, of, uh, of, of the job market because 
unlike the UK, there's not this idea that 50% of kids have got to go to university to do menial jobs. I mean, you, you, you're talking about um, uh, MBAs as entry-level requirements now. This oh, yeah. massive, massive degree inflation over time because it's not a discriminator anymore in the positive sense, of course, not the, uh, the modern sense. No, it's not. No, it's, uh, I don't know... Well, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe once I finish the course, I'll do a full podcast on the MBA. It's a bit of an eye-opener. But, yeah, the you want to be... I mean, you'd want your kids to go to a school just to get them to university. But, yeah, if they're not academic, yep. why would you pay this money? I mean, okay, you then go to a university. It's hard to know, hard to know what to do. My mate did a good job being a mercenary. He's not academic at all, but then he mm. kills people with his hands which probably isn't the best job for everybody, but it seems to suit him. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, but no, it's um, getting, getting back to the expat thing. I think there's, uh, particularly in the oil business, particularly if your first assignment is in a kind of, not even a hardship location, just a place where you can't easily integrate. I think you're already in a mentality. Yeah. And once you're in that mentality, yeah, it's very difficult to go beyond. I'm quite unusual in the fact that I've, Lived as an expat, although my time in Russia, there was a huge local... I lived a lot with, as a... Not as a local, but certainly not quite as an expat either. I had yeah. a lot of Russian friends. Basically, Friday night I was out with Russians. Saturday night I was out with the expats. And that's partly because my family situation at the time and the fact I spoke Russian. I was really interested in Russia. So there I wasn't kind of your typical expat, but I was still very much an expat. Mm. But in France... And particularly now, I mean, I never saw myself as an expat in France. Yeah. I was, even though I didn't integrate particularly that much the first couple of years, I've made that transition, as you said, from expat to immigrant. So mm. now I'm, yeah, foreign resident here. And now I have no expat advantages at all. I mean, I'm here living just uh, as a normal person and I intend to make that permanent. But I'm unusual in doing that. Yeah. I know very few people who've given up the expat life. I know people who've given up the expat life and gone home to Australia or Britain or wherever, but I don't know many who've decided to give up the expat life and become just a normal integrated immigrant in a foreign country. Mm. don't know many. Because in Holland, I try very hard to integrate, learning the language. If you've got a sport, um, joining a sport club was good. And once I've been there for a year... Uh, part of the problem in Holland is trying to stop them speaking English. So you, yes. ha- you have to get your accent good just for the, f- just for a few phrases, so that they don't immediately switch. In in, uh, in German speaking Switzerland, uh, if they hear an accent, they switch to High German. It's like I'm not a German. I can we speak dialect. It's fine. Um, and uh, yeah, I made a lot of effort, and people would say, "Well, ooh, Mike's gone native," or uh, to use the old British Raj uh, yeah. terminology, or. Or there's uh, there's no one as uh, as fanatical as a convert, as it were. And I I tried very very hard to integrate. I found it. I thought it was very important because at the time that was going to be it. Yeah. Whether we'd stayed there post retirement, the the idea was that I was going to do my entire career there, um, in this job, and then we would look and see age sixty whether we stayed there or sixty five. Well, expert yeah. package sixty actually. Um, and uh, or we go somewhere else. Sort of, it was just sort of we'll do our time, thirty odd years, forty years. So what, why did you leave Holland? Um, I'd always wanted to move to Switzerland. Okay. Basically, that sounds very inconsistent with we moved to Holland and thought we'd be there for the rest. I know, of our lives. but we thought it wasn't going to happen. Okay. Effectively, we thought that we were going to be stuck there. But I did a set of professional exams. My wife encouraged me and supported me to do a set of professional exams that would let us get get out. Okay. Um, but I'd, I'd sort of internalised in my head the idea of that was that was it, that uh, that a move, because it required a career move, uh, that that was was not going to be possible. It wasn't on the on the cards. Um, she encouraged me to do the exams. I did the exams, and then we're like, okay, well, Switzerland. Uh, Shall we see if we can uh, can we, if we can get into Switzerland? And it worked. And I I applied for a job under under local conditions. And, uh, and we moved to Switzerland around the time of the birth of my second kid. Right. Um, and uh, tell me, you, men- you mentioned earlier about how you found there were very, there was a lot of, no, not in the place you would, but you heard that in, was it in Shell, where there was apparently a lot of anti-Dutch sentiment? Much. There was a certain amount where I was, but not as bad. But talking to, to people in, uh, 
in uh, who worked at, at Shell that were coming into contact with some of some of them found that uh, that they'd experienced quite a toxic anti-Dutch environment where people were almost encouraged to slag off the Dutch. There was certainly something they could get away with. I mean, saying absolutely vile things about the Dutch and Dutch culture, which if they'd uh, said it about anyone from uh, further south or further east, they'd have been up on a charge with HR and shot at dawn. Yeah. But they were very much allowed to get away with it and to slag it off. And if anyone brought it up to HR, it, it was basically SJW um, justified. If the Dutch are dominant, it's their country, so they just need to suck it up. It's interesting that. Now, I can, I do know that, well, the important thing to distinguish as well, there's two kind of Dutch. There's the Dutch and there's the Shell Dutch. Mm. And the Shell Dutch are not typical of normal Dutch. They tend to be... There's some brilliant Shell Dutch. I know a lot of them. Some of them are absolutely fantastic. There's an awful lot of assholes. And when they all get concentrated in a company like Shell, you can quickly become jaded with the Dutch. Because they, they're, very, they're very blunt, they're very forward. It comes across as arrogance. And if they are genuinely arrogant assholes, that just gets compounded. Mm. So I can kind of see where that comes from. But nonetheless, you're right. that this, I mean, that surprises me because I've always found the Dutch to be very open, very welcoming. Um, and I, yeah, I'm surprised that it tipped that far, far over. It into, might have just been one department, or the, the, but I heard it from, from two or three people. Right. And they were quite because upset at... When you, when you work in a big French company, you have to be... You, you see a lot of stuff which is really, really, really annoying. Mm. And you have to be very careful not to quickly get into a state of blaming everything on the fact that it's French. You have to... I had to acknowledge that what I was seeing was probably a result of three things. Part of it was due to the French culture, but a big part of it was due to big company culture and particularly oil company culture. So you'd probably find very similar things in BP because a big company is British, but you wouldn't see the sort of the 20% of it that was down to the French. But then you'd get some British uh, characteristic that would be equally annoying. Oh, like, uh, like, I'm in charge, therefore I'm competent. Exactly. So you, you, have to, you have to always be aware and stop yourself when you're very frustrated to be going, oh, it's bloody French and blaming everything on the French. You really had to... And I worked quite hard at not doing that, which is why I managed to... I really didn't like my, pre, my previous employer by the end. I was very unhappy with what I saw there and how I thought I was managed. But I've managed to separate that from a particularly French thing. Now, I mm. wouldn't really want to work for a French company again, I don't think, particularly a big one. But then I wouldn't want to work for any big company again. I mean, people talk about working... I've met people who've worked for Nestle and Procter & Gamble in, the, in Switzerland. They say it's terrible because you, you, you can't move. I mean, it might be good for some people, but for not someone like me. It's so rigid and so hierarchical and a lot of bureaucracy. So I think that was... I was quite pleased I managed to do that. I, I didn't... My experience didn't make me dislike France and the French to the point I became jaded with it. I just understood mm. that this is a way of working in a big company that I need to get out of, but I'll stay in France. Yeah. So you didn't, you, you didn't turn into the whinging expat? No, I didn't. And I, I worked quite hard um, to a point integrating into... I mean, I had my music group that I played with every Saturday. I used to hang out with ordinary French, particularly in the final year when a lot of my expat, my expat friends had taken assignments overseas and kind of left me on my own. And uh, yeah, I when I was complaining, which was a lot, it was always about the, the method of management, the decisions that were being made, the lack of consistency within the office. It was never this broad brush, mm. oh, this is the French way of doing it, this is French, this guy's French. Because to be honest, I've had complete asshole British bosses Oh, and true. I've seen completely incompetent British people. So it's not necessarily a national thing. And I had some people in total who were very much on my side, who were really supportive. And they were French. They understood exactly what I was going through. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really a national thing or even particularly a cultural thing. It was more, uh, it was just a sort of management style thing combined with, an oil company which has too much money and big company mentality. Mm. I think another sort of important difference between the sort of 
temporariness of, uh, of expat versus immigrant is that when you immigrate to somewhere, you've made a, typically made a conscious decision to go there and you're buying into the whole package. And what a lot of Brits do, particularly Brits, monolingual Brits who've never lived abroad, they'll see one data point in another country and say, oh, that's great and we should have that. But they don't see the ecosystem in which the, this data point lives. For instance, I had some guy uh, say to me, uh, all right, so how's Switzerland treating you? Oh, actually, yeah, that's pretty good, but they're working pretty hard. What? They all take two-hour lunch breaks. How can they be working you very hard? Because he's seen the data point of two-hour lunch breaks and thinks this is great. And he projects this into the British system of a paid one-hour lunch break. Yeah. Well, I presume most people still have that in the UK. I've never actually worked in the UK. But then you explain to him that actually lunch breaks in Switzerland are not paid. You are obliged by law to take at least half an hour. So that two hours is on the person's own time. So your British nine to five is a minimum nine to five thirty if you take the minimum legal yeah. lunch break. And if they're taking a two hour lunch break, it's eight to six. Yeah. Uh, for the same money. Yeah, it's- exactly. Yeah. No, I, and I found a lot. I, I found didn't find the French lazy. The ones who are working in the administration and the prefectures, they're bone idle. And yeah, which is the same as anybody working in public service anywhere in the world. But the French people who worked in my previous employer worked seriously long hours. They worked like hell to the point that they were burning out. The problem was they just couldn't work efficiently. Mm. They were just running around in circles like headless chickens doing unnecessary work or repeating work they'd got wrong the first time. But in terms of attitudes of getting into work sitting down and doing something, applying themselves. I mean, they, they were a lot hard worker than me, which, are, to be fair, the bar's not set very high on that score, but they, they were working. Um, so the sort of the myth of the lazy French worker with a long lunch break didn't really apply. They were in the office till late. They were in where I worked. They were in there late. I was the first one to get out at about five, but I got in at eight and I was one of the first ones in. But no, they, they worked. Yeah, mm. they, they, and they, if they were told to work late or weekends, they'd do it, no problem at all. A lot of them had families. So, but yeah, getting back to what you, what you were saying about you take a single data point, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, provided you're aware you're doing that. But most people who do that are utterly unaware yeah. that they're doing that. Oh, I was, oh yeah, I had an accident in Switzerland, went into A&E, it was great, I was seen really quickly. Yeah, because you haven't got drunk people with bottles sticking out their heads no, they so charge you, so don't they, you? Because if, if, you, if you present yourself at A&E unnecessarily in Switzerland, your insurer is not covering it. You can yeah. actually get a... You're paying the, the full whack, and they know how to write a good bill, Yeah, the, these, these hospitals. So, um, I mean, I cut the end of my thumb off and self-presented, and that was fine. But if I'd, if I'd just cut myself or something, there's a hierarchy you're supposed to call the out-of-hours doctor who does a basic triage and says yes or no to right. whether you go yeah. to, to A&E uh, or not. So there's a certain degree of risk, and you don't want to be picked up by an ambulance unnecessarily in Switzerland because... Uh, no, they don't get used you. as taxis. But, but an, another example, when I spent that time in Thailand, I used to tell people, and I still do, that I was there really as a tourist. Mm. And I didn't make any attempt to integrate or even learn the language or anything. I wasn't really interested and I wasn't there that long. But so long as I knew that I was there as a tourist and I wasn't pretending, it allowed me to not get frustrated with anything. Whereas last time I was there, I spoke to uh, an expat who was complaining about something. He was complaining about the, the, the fact that some, I think it was insurance company, was spending taking ages to do this and ages and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, in the UK, this should be done in five minutes. Yeah, but you're not living in the UK. Yeah. The, in the UK, you, you, this insurance would have cost a lot more and you'd be spending much more anyway. You can't go to a country and take all the benefits while complaining about the downsides. It's, it's a balance. It's, you take the rough with the smooth. Yeah. It's wanting to pick and choose the data points that you like and then somehow do away with all the complementary ones. Exactly. Uh, you, you, you see it in the debate on, uh, on tertiary education in the UK. Like, oh, in, in Germany, uh, yes, uh, they, university fees are tiny or free, and uh, this is great, we should do this. Yeah, but they massively ration access to university Yeah. in a way that is politically entirely unacceptable in the UK or the US. 
Exactly, yeah. So you can have this... Yeah, you can you can easily... I mean, it's why a lot of people say uh, they're always looking at Singapore. And I've been to Singapore and it works very well. It's a tiny city-state. You can't apply that and that culture and that method of government to an island of 60 million people. Mm. It just won't work. And there are... Yeah, there are good things about any country, but... They don't exist in isolation. There are trade-offs for that. Yeah, and then and sort of as a general cultural point, um, I mean the the Dutch are quite direct in yes. a way that Brits aren't. But you've got to you sort of got to be aware of this because otherwise it can lead to um, misunderstandings. And you, they're not being rude. That's that's they're just being straightforward. That's just them. That's just yeah. that's just, that's. And it does take getting used to it. It took me a while to get used to it. I'm thinking, who's this asshole, you know? Well, he's not being an asshole, yeah. he's just being Dutch. And this yeah. is how they speak. And, and, and once you're used to that, it's fine. Absolutely. And there's differences with the French. The Brits and the Swiss get on quite well because we have the same indirectness. We'll talk around a topic but understand really what's being, uh, what's being said. And we do it in a very, very similar manner, although in different languages. Um, whereas some of, the, some of the, the general Dutch tendencies... Uh, particularly in direct in direct speech, they butt up against the British indirectness. Yeah, and you can actually end up totally talking past each other. You think the Dutch guy's being rude because he's just talking what in their culture is normally, and then you get frustrated because he's not understanding you because you're talking in your normal way. And it was actually a realization I had was uh, that the English, international English, and standard British English. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah, completely different. Yeah. I, I went into this situation thinking, well, I speak English, these people learn English, so I'll speak my English and they'll understand me. No, no. they don't. So you're saying things like, well, I hear what you're saying, and what does that mean to a foreigner? Yeah. I mean, for an English person, I'll know that, well, he doesn't agree. Oh, we'd be doing it like this for donkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Just stand this. Like, no. No, in fact, I, I've ended up... I don't use those colloquialisms. I've either. been abroad so long now, I have to speak in pretty clear English. Most of the people I interact with, don't. a lot of them don't have particularly good levels of English, so I have to speak clearly, um, which is something that my mother dinned into, into me um, when we had foreigners around when we were kids. You have to speak clearly, finish yeah. your sentences, say the whole word, don't use slang, that kind of thing. I was totally unaware that a lot of, a lot of the words I used were, in fact, slang was just so internalised that this is this is this is how English is spoken and these people have learnt English and they speak fluent English therefore they must be able to understand so I I, I now speak a totally different English to what I spoke 15 years ago because yeah, I yeah. had to train myself out of using using slang using colloquialisms uh, to enunciate clearly to not run off on the end of a sentence like that exactly so do you think in Switzerland there are expats who are very jaded about the Swiss I can imagine in Geneva, which is very international, you'll get a lot of temporary expats and expats in bubbles. Mm. I you wonder if they exist there. You see it a bit on EnglishForum.ch, which I no oh, longer okay. frequent, but at various times it was useful for finding out information on how to do things. Um, and what were the complaints typically? Uh, people being distant. It's mostly social interaction. Uh, right. It's very, very private yes. in, in yeah, general. Yeah. I mean, this is always on a bell curve. There's always exceptions. Um, people being private, uh, being unapproachable outside of work, people ending up feeling is- isolated socially because they're used to doing things with their neighbours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they don't, they don't get that. But that's that's part of how it is. And if you're not integrating, because I mean the Dutch loved showing off that they could speak uh, English, although often far worse than they thought they could. Speak. Yes, I, I speak awkward English. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, the the. I mean, in Zurich and Geneva, there's a lot more English spoken, but around where I live, there's very, very few people who speak uh, English. Yeah. So, but people will automatically talk in, in High German to you, particularly the older generation, because they, they hear an accent and they're just pre-programmed to switch to High German. Right. Um, so that can make learning dialect trickier. You've got, to, you, you've got to beat on that drum quite hard and want to, to learn dialect. And frankly, it's easier than High German. There's less mistakes to make. There's less grammar. Yeah, yeah. No, I've... I've... But I think to integrate, you need to, the purpose of, how can I put this? The purpose of integration isn't just to integrate. You have to, you have to do something else. You have to want to do an activity with these people and the integration will then happen. 
Yeah, like I've, I've done it. Uh, I mean, sports is a good one. Yeah. Um, playing music's a good one because it's very international. I mean, you can sit down and play music with any nationality. You don't really need to communicate that much. Mm. You need well, you need to agree what the song is and what the uh, key oh, thought, is in. Oh, I thought we were playing free jazz. Sorry. Yeah, that's and you, you got some. Yeah, you do get some funny conversations there. What song are we playing here? What's this? But uh, I think this is the advice I got when I first moved to France: was you have to find an activity that you want to do. And then the integration will happen. If you kind of, you just want to socialize. I mean, you just want to hang out and meet people and talk like a coffee morning. That's very difficult because that requires you to have an interest in each other's culture. Whereas if you're doing a sport or you're doing a shared activity or you're, uh, you're playing music together or you're sailing or diving or something you've automatically got that shared interest yeah and then it's just a way of taking it from there so what the advice was for everybody who arrived was find an activity that you can do with outside of expats outside of work just with local french and i'm not sure many did that but i did with the music i found this bluegrass jam session i joined them it took them about a year before they actually spoke to me I mean, this is <laughs> Paris. They're not open people. You know, you sort of got grunted at when you walked in for the first time. Then they started criticizing how I was playing. But through pure stubbornness, I kept going back. And then, you know, I was, by the time I left five years later, I was one of their, their, their main members and I still get emails from them. So it was really good. And it was quite nice to break down those barriers and sort of become yeah. accepted into them. But you, you have to do it through a shared activity. I don't think, I think the problem is you get sort of maybe housewives or bored guys just saying, expecting to walk into a pub or have a, or start socialising with people as if you've known them your whole life. Because the Brits are a bit like that. You can do that. But you mm. without that shared activity, it's hard to do. Yeah. And certainly in Holland, it was entirely possible to live 100% in the expat bubble. Yes. And uh, in fact, one of my immediate colleagues who was Portuguese, he basically prohibited his children from interacting with Dutch kids. So he would, uh, he would schlep them in the car halfway across town to go and play with other Portuguese kids. Right, why did he do that? Upset over some football result from 1972 no or something? I have no idea. It was, it was very strange. There was a certain degree of Portuguese nationalism in there. Yeah. He was also, he was also quite socialist. Nationalist? Anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he was a bit of a supporter of some... Portuguese trot party. Because I can, I can understand maybe you don't want your, I don't know, perhaps you don't want your children mixing with French kids or something. That's perfectly understandable. But Dutch kids will be all right. I mean, Dutch, uh, Dutch are always... I mean, he, he went to great lengths to prevent his children from interacting with them. He didn't want them to become Dutch. It was like, yeah, that's really not fair on your kids. So, so he, he, lived, he lived in a little 1920s um, uh, suburb and there were plenty of kids playing in the street. But no, 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 his kids had to be trafficked across town to... That's weird. That's almost like you see the the Pakistani immigrants doing in the UK, isn't it? Where they refuse to let their, you know, they refuse to integrate with the, the locals around them. And they, they go to the special schools and they, they don't let their kids play with the others. You know, that's, that's weird coming from Portuguese. I didn't see, it's, almost, it's almost like they're fundamentalist religious or some sort. They weren't, though. That's the thing. I mean, his politics were atrocious um, but he, he had a massive nationalist uh, street running through against the Dutch the poor Dutch I wonder what they've done to deserve yeah. that yeah. And, uh, what was what was interesting was that in the canteen the Portuguese would almost all sit together yeah yeah no, I can really, to be honest that the Brits did that in the nationalities did that in 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 the oil companies uh, we, did, we didn't have that the Brits and the Dutch would mingle with all, all sorts yeah you'd probably do it with the Dutch actually the Dutch because the Dutch and Brits they can I found I can speak to Dutch very very easily much easier than the French and the problem is one of the problems I found with the French is one on one you could talk to them about anything but in a group of two or three and if there was a boss around they wouldn't talk about anything other than the project Mm. So it used to get extremely dull. I was always told, you know, you should go to lunch with your French colleagues. And if I got one on their own, oh, it was great. You know, you could talk to them about everything, what they were doing at university and ski trips they did and when they met their wives and what they do with their kids. It was really good. You get in a group of four and it's, Tim, what project are you working on? Oh, what's the production rate of that facility? When do you think you'll be doing your presentation? And I, I think you what, 
what's this? But they wouldn't open up about anything because there was one. It was weird. There was one of. But that might have been a that might have been a total thing because again, one slip up and your career's gone. Mm. It's very liberating for me not having a career there. <laughs> um, and in fact, it was the the. I don't I don't know if it's the same in Shell, but in Total, we got a lot of leeway because we were expats. There was an expectation that we were going to be weird and not with the program because we're British or because we're expats. But the pressure of expectation on the young French was enormous. You're, you've come through the French school system, which is very rigid. You've gone through the university system and there's certain behaviours and attitudes which are expected. You've now joined a company like that and this is how you are expected to behave. And the pressure on them to conform, there just wasn't any room for them to just go, you know, I'm going to decide I'm going to be a different person. Whereas we had more flexibility. And occasionally you'd meet a Frenchman who was very good technically, who was, who'd sort of gone off message. And he was almost ostracized. They keep him because they're good at uh, what they do and they can't really get rid of anybody. But their career was dead and they were looked down upon by the hierarchy. So it's really, it's if there's a magnifying glass on them all the time, which means that they don't want to speak out of turn ever. Interesting. But it made it very dull. It was, it was quite disappointing because there were some good guys there and you could see they had the, per- I mean, they had personalities. They had friends from university and school and things, but you could never really, rarely you could break that down. It seems almost sort of totalitarian in a way that they're called total for a reason (laughs) no no but it is but that's big companies i think and i'm i'm not convinced it would be any different even in the uk or anywhere i think everybody's very guarded now they're very everything's very politicized you have to be on message well if you if you if you say the wrong thing these days you can get uh, your career ended yeah so the best way to do it is just to build a wall just say whatever you need to say to keep your career going and then outside of work is your release but it makes it very unhealthy you spend a lot of time at work and you could see the stress levels were building up you could see people wanted to release and I was very good at wandering from desk to desk getting people to a desk to desk getting people to open up so I'm quite open and I've got no qualms about saying what I want people would kind of respond to that and start talking to me and I actually used to get calls from not so much no, never the French but from other expats saying I need to talk to you about something and they just unload all these problems they've got. And I'd be there sort of, you know, Uncle Tim listening, you know, it's always like an, an agony uncle. And you weren't taking notes to pass one up to management? No, I was, I was gathering <laughs> blogging material um, and stuff for a podcast. But yeah, it was quite interesting, but they didn't really have these outlets and you could see it was building up and suddenly I'd get a call saying, let's go to lunch. And suddenly this huge deluge of stuff, which was a mixture of professional and personal mm. and other stuff would come out and you could see the French couldn't do that and if the only outlet they've got is back home with their families that's not healthy either mm. but it was, it was strange whereas the when we got together with a bunch of expats at lunch I was right laugh you know we were talking about everything we were making fun of you know all and sundry we were talking about the stupidities that we were seeing around us it doesn't matter what the topic was and it was far more open and relaxed and we found occasionally a French person would join us I remember one girl in particular, she ended up moving to London, maybe this is why, but she, she sat at the end of the table and she just laughed the whole way through the lunch, just at the way we were talking to one another. Mm. She just said, the way you're talking, you're just so open, you're just discussing anything and just making jokes and disparaging everybody. And, and she found it hilarious. She, she couldn't imagine that people actually talk about this stuff at lunchtime mm. because she's used to just, you know, zip it unless you're talking about the details of the project. Mm. And British banter, sort of mutually insulting banter, that's a very, very, that's a... Um, that's oh, they do like a, it. Foreigners like listening to it, I've discovered. Yeah, because yeah, well, it's something totally alien. It is, exactly. Yeah, I've known a couple of French who used to sit at the end of the table when we were in the staff club in Lagos, and they would just be there laughing, just the way we talked to one another. Because you all kind of gang up on one guy. And then after a few minutes, you've ganged up on another. And anybody makes any kind of slip up or shows weakness, mm. the whole group is pouncing on them. But it's all very friendly. Yeah. And the, yeah, the, the French kind of, they, they like this. Yeah. But it's, it's one thing you've got to be aware of, that that's a British thing to be done around Brits and, and foreigners who've lived in Britain and understand it, because it can be really taken badly by people who don't have that cultural backdrop. Absolutely. And you know when somebody's westernised, 
or they've spent time in the UK when they can do that. I mean, it was brilliant. I had this group in Total who was, yeah, there was a Venezuelan, Malaysian, Russian, and you could, you could, and a Syrian, you could make fun of all them because they were just about enough. They could understand what it was and they found it funny. And when, when they realised they can dish it back, yeah. they love that because suddenly they can dish it back, you know, and they're, they're, not, going, they're not going to offend anybody. But it was good fun. Yeah, it was, uh, and it's quite nice to see foreigners getting on board with that. But I can also see how people find it annoying. Yeah. I can see how, you know, especially the French didn't like it. They thought we were, the French management didn't like it. They didn't think we were being serious. Mm. You know, you're not being serious. You're just, you're just making these jokes all the time. Yeah. But the, and also the, the, the way that Brits, it's the third topic is the, uh, of conversation is the important one. So we'll do, that's, that's, sometimes the, the, the Dutch have had difficulty with this because they just get straight to the point. Whereas a Brit will say, well, we'll deal with a couple of minor non-issues first. And they, right, well, actually, um, and then start on the main conversation of topic. But to people who are much more direct, the, uh, like, the most important thing is the first thing. And, uh, get straight to the point, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so you, you're obviously fully integrated into Switzerland. Uh, I don't know how long... I don't really know how long I'll be here in France or if I'll work in Switzerland or whether I'll have to go back on the expat trail again. I don't know. Um, I wouldn't rule it out going expat again. I didn't mind it because um, I could decide in advance if I was going to try to integrate or be an expat. And if yeah. I go there with the mentality of being an expat, I'm okay with that. I can kind of ring fence it. Nigeria was hard. I won't lie about that. That was very hard. Um, I have another friend who's, who's in the oil industry who turned down a posting to Nigeria, even after they upped the, uh, the, the danger money massively. He said, look, the fact that you're willing to pay me that much to go there to do my job tells me exactly why I don't want to go there. Yeah, funnily enough, I, I wouldn't rule out going back there. My, my objection to not carrying on as an expat in the oil industry wasn't based on the fact that I didn't want to live in hardship places anymore. It was mainly the fact that I was being sent there to do jobs that didn't need doing. Mm. I knew that if I'd stayed where I was, they would probably send me to Gabon or Angola or somewhere, and I'd be doing a low-level admin job, which is pretty much what everybody does in oil businesses now. And it just simply wasn't necessary for me to be in that position, living like that, in order to do fill out spreadsheets and prepare presentations for my boss. If somebody said to me, <clears throat> excuse me, if somebody said to me, we need you to go to Nigeria to do this important job and run a project because we need you to deliver this and this is what we'll pay you, I would seriously consider it because, again, it's an opportunity. It's somewhere to actually deliver um, using the skills I have. But there's just no point in going through hardship positions when you don't really need to be there. You just think, well, why am I here? There's no point in me being here. So I wouldn't actually rule it out. I'd, and I mean, Nigeria was okay. Um, it wasn't like Iraq or places where, or Afghanistan, where there's real bad security risks. I mean... It w I didn't really feel that unsafe at any point in Nigeria. Maybe there were moments, but in general, you don't feel unsafe. Mm. I mean, you land at the airport, you're not worried someone's going to kidnap you. You're worried that you'll never, ever get through immigration because the queue's so long. You might die of old age, but you don't worry about... You know, you just stop worrying about it. Um, so it wasn't bad from that point of view. So if, I've actually got a mate who might have an opportunity in Nigeria in future. Not a big chance. But if he called me up and said, look, we need an engineering manager to deliver this project. Are you interested? I'll listen. I wouldn't just rule it out and say, oh, I'm never going back there. But if my old company had said, we need you to go back to Nigeria, I'd have said, no way. Because I'll just be doing the same nonsense that I did when I... Actually, my job there wasn't too bad. But I'd end up doing the same nonsense that I've come to be doing in that company. So... Yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, I haven't got any desire to go and work in another country yet. But if the right opportunity came up, I'd, I'd do it, I think. Mm. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But on the other hand, I might end up living here and working in Geneva and just being a normal, I don't know, whatever. Frontalier. Frontalier, yeah. British immigrant in, in Annecy. So we'll see. Yeah. But, um, I mean, 
sometimes I have to explain to people that I didn't move to Switzerland for the job, I moved to Switzerland for Switzerland. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is a, is a big thing. People sort of assume that it's that it was specifically for the job or if it was um, uh, because I'd married a Swiss girl, which I didn't. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a sort of... I think few people move to somewhere for the place. I yes. mean, my job, my job's pretty portable around, around Europe. Um, it's kind of portable to the rest of the Anglosphere, actually, as well, but less so. Yeah. My qualification is European recognised, but I'd have to... I'd have to do exams again if yeah. I went elsewhere. Um, but it was like the place came first, the job came second. The job was the vehicle to get to the place. And, and now I'm in, a, I'm in a situation where I really like my job. I've got a lot of autonomy in my job. Very, very small firm and uh, no Belgians. Yeah. Of the shoulder. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Now, it's interesting, actually, you go for the place, not the job. So I think probably for most of my career, I've gone... Actually, no, it depends. I worked hard to get into Russia. I took the job in Sakhalin because I wanted to go to Russia and I was applying for loads of jobs in Russia. I wanted to go to Moscow, but couldn't get a job there. So I ended up in Sakhalin, which in hindsight was probably a, a good thing. Although I do regret that I never had an expat assignment in Moscow. I'd love to have lived in Moscow. Now, probably not. The opportunities aren't there anymore and the place has changed. Changed for the better, but maybe not better for expats. But uh, I'd like to have done a year or two in Moscow. But otherwise, yeah, it's um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, because I probably stayed in I've stayed in France because of the place. So certainly not here for the job. So I don't have one. <laughs> um, yeah, and Switzerland. Yeah, I imagine really it's I'd be looking for work in Geneva mainly to support my living in Annecy. Mm. Yeah, but then again, there's also something about the Swiss way of working which appeals more than working for a giant French company in Paris. Yeah, big big companies aren't such a big deal in Switzerland. I mean, we've been discussing uh, previously off, off microphone that uh, Switzerland and Germany, there's a lot of the, the known as in Germany is the Mittelstand. Yeah, the SMEs, yeah, the it's, small, it's, medium size. Yeah, yeah. Very much an SME dominated job market. You've got big boys like. Nestle and yeah, Roche and Novaris and, and these guys, yeah. Yeah, the Novaris is it? Yeah, the Novartis. Novartis, that's the it. Yeah. Pharma, big pharma, big chemical, um, and then uh, Nestle for food. But most people are are employed by SMEs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and part of this is because neither the Swiss nor the West Germans went through a spate of nationalising everything in sight in the fifties. So it didn't result in an agglomeration to anywhere near the same degree as it did in the UK. I mean, all the car industry in the UK was pretty nationalised. Much, was nationalised. Yeah, yeah, it was all, um, what the hell are they called? Uh, what's they called? British uh, Leyland. British Leyland, that's right, yeah. Um, and the coal industry was all, 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 all nationalised. And a, a lot of people in the UK, when they think, OK, I'm going to graduate from university and then I'm going to go on the graduate scheme in a big company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of almost goes without saying that you're likely to work for, for some large company uh, unless you start your own business or something. And that's true in France as well. It's true in France. I mean, everybody seems to want to work for these giant companies because, well, they're less chance they go bankrupt, I think. But yeah, I, I think that I need to find... It depends. I mean, there's a chance I might end up with a startup. There's a lot of them in Geneva, but they don't have any money. So you'd end up having to try to get paid in equity and hope that it works out. That's yeah. not a bad way of doing it, although that doesn't pay bills. Um Hence, everybody needs to contribute to my Patreon page, by the way. I'll just throw that out there. So, come on, cough up some cash and I can go and work for a startup and blog about it. <laughs> right, getting back on uh, back on subject. Yeah, maybe um, a medium-sized company that's grown would have more money and probably needs my... Because I'm really an administrator and they don't need that so much in a startup. But when something starts growing rapidly, that's when they need proper administration put in. So I probably need to find a small company that's growing and they're recruiting fast, they, you know, they're expanding quickly, mm. and try and join one of them where you get the mixture of kind of the autonomy plus the a good balance between autonomy plus a method of working in a structured manner. Mm. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a surprising amount of state support of, uh, of startups. There's all these... Startup incubators. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I've and seen you, that. I mean, Switzerland is uh, is often portrayed as extremely free market, and to a certain degree, it is. But there's also an awful lot of 
can at cantonal level of helping startups, helping startups get their IP portfolio in order to va- to to valorize it, and um, they try. They, I believe they expect to see a return on it. But there's all these business angels at cantonal level. The canton supports these these small business angel type companies to then support people to support startups in that given canton. And you see a lot of this in the Jura and in the Valley, which are sort of less economically. Someone will probably rag on me for saying that, but uh, they're traditionally more rural cantons, and they're trying to support industry because ultimately, ultimately, industry, if it's successful, ends up paying corporation tax to the canton. Yeah, exactly. And and Switzerland is not short of cash. I mean, there's there's money floating around, so they're injecting it in, trying to yeah to keep the foundation on which the economy is based growing because. Yeah, it's a good way to go about it because as I've expressed in my blog, I'm not sure just having a handful of giant multinationals lumbering around is is very sustainable. It's a, also, it's a massive risk because if one of these if your local economy is dominated by one big multinational and that goes tits akimbo. Yeah. You're 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 stuffed. I mean, I I lived in a municipality where a large proportion of the tax income came from one um, in fact, it was Vigier Cement. Right. Because um, they had a business unit there that made concrete railway sleepers, amongst other things. And it just so dominated the local finances that if something went wrong with that, or if, if Vigier, Vigier Cement, there was, a, there was a fusion recently. Uh, yeah, if they got closed back, down, they'd, if, be, they'd be stuffed. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a big, big part of the economy. Yeah. And there's a lot of risk spreading, having lots of SMEs. The chances of them all going tits up at the same time. No, exactly. And you, and you only need uh, you know, a handful of them. I mean, you're not going to get all of them doing particularly well, but if you've got enough of them coming through and 5% do pretty well, yeah. then that's, that's enough. And people, people tend not to commute long distances in Switzerland either. So if you've got a startup that ends up employing 50 people and it's turning a profit, they're going to be paying corporation tax on the profit. Plus, chances are that most of those 50 people are going to be living Locally, locally-ish. Yeah or at least most of them will be living locally-ish and they're paying income tax. And Switzerland is not the, aside from Canton Zug and places like that, it is really not as low tax as people think. No, I can imagine. In any way, shape or form. It is a lower tax environment, but then that exists in an ecosystem of you have to pay out of pocket for practically everything. Yeah, exactly. So it's all all swings and roundabouts. and it keep it gets the money and keeps it keeps it circulating around the economy. They're they're very grown up about it. They're very pragmatic. Yeah, they're not, yeah. They're not so ide- ideological, and uh, this will probably upset the more libertarian of Tim's uh, readers. Where, yeah, it's, Switzerland is not a libertarian paradise in any way, shape, or form. But it's very pragmatic. And yeah, it's a exactly. Stable regulatory environment. Yeah. You know that there's not going to be a Corbyn type coming in and nationalising everybody or anything like that. Change happens, it tends to happen slowly. Um, no, you're unlikely from one day to the next to have your product banned. Yeah, exactly. Unless it happens at EU level and the EU forces that on, on Switzerland, which happens. Although they found a Swiss army knife ended up when the, the ban on taking pen knives on planes, that hit them really hard. Now, after 9-11 apparently, when the, they banned people taking the pen knives on yeah. planes. You go to an airport, it's full of Swiss Army knives back in those days. Well, it, That's why they've had Zurich to branch airport. out into luggage and... But Zurich Airport, and... you can still buy pen knives airside. Yeah. But presumably because because they're going in the sealed bag or whatever. Oh, okay. I have no idea. I was like, what? what why are there Victorinox knives but, there? And they've, the... they've merged apparently. There were two companies that made Zanger. them. They've merged now, I believe. Yeah. So, But I heard they ran into trouble, something like that. But So yeah, if half your economy is based on making... Swiss Army knives, um, yeah, and suddenly they're banned on planes. Yeah, you're in trouble. But so anyway, I'll, I'll, we're coming towards the end of an hour now. We'll wrap this up. I'd like to, um, I, I'd like to spend more time in Switzerland, and I do hope I don't end up working in a Swiss company and get very jaded and decide I don't like the Swiss. But again, the, the onus is on me to stop that happening. Yeah. Because sorry. if I go and work for a Swiss company and I don't like the Swiss, well, the problem's me, not the Swiss. Yeah, it's just how it is. That I mean, the the world is how it is. It's nothing's nothing's perfect. You 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 pick and choose. There's no there is no utopia. There can never be a utopia. There's always going to be things that annoy you in any job, in any culture, 
um, and you just got to you just got to sort of accept it and, and and take the rough with the smooth and deal with it. Exactly. So anyway, I will. I suggest we have this conversation again in a year or two. Yeah. See where you're and at. See where I am. Yeah. So okay, everybody. Well, thanks for listening, and yep, catch you soon. Bye.